why don't we begin together with a word of prayer? So let's, um, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, as we approach your word now, we are reminded what, what Jesus told the devil and tempted to turn stones into bread. Jesus said that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from you. And Father, while certainly we need physical bread to sustain our physical lives, and we should pray each day that you would give us the bread that we need to live, at the same time we know that we need something more, that our souls need to be sustained. And so, Father, we pray that your word would nourish us tonight. We pray that your word would be a feast for us that we can enjoy, should be strengthened by. Father, we ask that you would help our vision of you to grow larger, that you would save us from those times when we would think of you as a small God, unable to work out our problems, or to solve our situations. Forgive us for when we treat you as if you are not almighty, or not all wise, or not all good. Father, we ask that you would give us a grasp of the deep truths that are being taught in these opening verses of the Bible. And we pray, Father, that we would not be just hearers of the word, but that it would affect us so that we become doers as well. Father, don't let us live on Monday as if we haven't heard the glorious truths that were preached on Sunday. But rather, Father, let them affect us. Heart, soul, and mind, let them affect us. Father, we do ask that you would be with our sick. We do ask that you would be with those Christians meeting around this world today. We do ask you would be with those taking your gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. We ask your blessings on the leaders of this church, the leaders of our city, the leaders of our state, nation. And Father, we pray most of all that you would send your Lord Jesus soon to come and to take us to himself. But Father, as we lift up all of these other concerns to you and so many that you know that we don't even know to express, our hearts cry at this moment as we come to sit around your feet is that you would feed us. So, Father, feed us now because you love us. And, Father, we pray that it would all bring glory and honor to you. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Well, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now this morning when we left off, we were thinking about this mysterious verse 2. Uh, we know verse 1 very well, but there is much in verse 2 that uh, sometimes we are not as familiar with. And uh, the point that I left off on um, was the fact that just as our earth began as formless and void... These raw materials that we see God creating in verse 2 from which He's going to create the universe and the earth. These, these, this watery wasteland that He has brought into existence. Remember this morning we said that not only is that how God began the world, but before He does the new creation, 
before he makes the new heavens and the new earth, Jeremiah and Isaiah both say that this earth that we're on right now will return to a state of formless and void. So what we were in the beginning, we will be again in the end. We will be uh, almost like the potter melting down his first pot, bringing it back to the level of clay that he can mold again into a new pot. That seems to be the picture of what will happen in the end. And we talked about this picture of the life-giving Holy Spirit hovering over the face of the waters, preparing the waters for the Word of God to be spoken into it, just as the Spirit of God works in our lives to prepare us for His Word. But here's the part that I skipped over this morning that I want to draw your attention to now because I think it's interesting. There has been another time in history since the creation when our world was something like a watery wasteland. Do you remember when that was? It was Noah and the flood, wasn't it? Now, it wasn't as complete. It wasn't, it wasn't Genesis 1-2, and it isn't what's going to be in the future, but it was a picture of that. And what is very interesting is that in Genesis 8, uh, verse 1, it's just a few pages over if you want to see it in your Bible. Uh, Genesis 8 Verse 1, we read this. And God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The word wind is the same word as spirit in Genesis 1-2. So just as God sent the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters in Genesis 1 before He brought life, so in the days of Noah, the Holy Spirit is seen, the wind of God is seen blowing over the waters as a sign that the waters are about to recede and that life is about to come on the earth. And this again points to that future day when once again this earth will be returned to its, this universe will be returned to those raw materials And then by the Spirit of God, a new creation, a new heavens and earth will be made. Well, I want to draw out some implications of verses 1 and 2. We looked at the verses themselves this morning, but I told you that there are a lot of implications of these verses for our lives. I want to draw some of them out for you. First implication. The opening verse of the Bible implies that many of the isms of this world are false. There are a lot of isms in the world. Atheism, polytheism, right? naturalism. Many of these isms that our world holds to are proved false by these verses. Let me mention to you five. First, atheism. Genesis 1, 1 and 2 says that atheism, the belief that there is no God, is false. The Bible does not argue God's existence. The Bible assumes God's existence. Genesis 1, 1 does not say, in the beginning there was a God, but rather, in the beginning, God. As if we're already to, as if it's already assumed that we know that He exists and knows who He is. All of Scripture speaks with one voice on this, that every human being knows in the depths of his soul that God exists. God does not believe in atheists. Did you know that? Romans 1, 19-20 says concerning mankind. Here's what God says about mankind. For what can be known about God 
is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now, if the Bible says that there are no such thing as atheists, that deep down all people inwardly have a sense there is a God, there is a creator, and he is powerful, and I will stand before him one day. If that truly is deep down in the hearts of mankind, why are there people around us that claim to be atheists? Romans 1 addresses this issue. It says that sinful men, verse 18, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In other words, it is the nature of sin in us to do all it can to suppress and ultimately outright deny what we know deep down in our hearts to be true. Even Christians, even Christians, those who profess to know God in those dark moments when we knowingly and purposefully sin, we act as if there is no God to whom we must give an account, don't we? When we are sinning, we are acting as atheists because we are saying... Well, because if we really said in our hearts, there isn't a God to whom I'm going to have to give an account to, and I believe in that God, we would not do the sin, would we? (laughs) If we really had a right understanding of who that God is and what we were doing, we would not do it. Yet there are times when we act as atheists. And when we do, the Bible says we are foolish. Psalm 14, 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Well, Genesis 1 is very clear. There is a God in the beginning God. Another ism that is false is pantheism. Pantheism is the belief that God is in all things. Not just when we say that God is everywhere, meaning His Spirit is with us, but when we say that God is in all things, He's he's in the wood, right? He's in my flesh. He's in these pages, right? He's a, a, a force that flows through all objects so that matter is somehow divine. This is uh, a part of uh, New Age theology these days. And Genesis 1 makes very clear that God is distinct from His creation. That God existed before His creation did. Therefore, we are not to worship things as if God dwells in things in that way. Pantheism is false. Naturalism is false. Naturalism. And by naturalism, I am referring particularly to the idea that the universe we live in is eternal. This has become a very popular notion in our day. This is the view that is held by those who outwardly deny God's existence, most of them. This is the perspective that seems to underlie the evolutionary worldview, and it is the perspective that that tends to underlie most of the scientific textbooks in our schools. Naturalists are quick to point out the scientific law that matter or energy can be neither created nor destroyed. And they say, look at our universe. It's made of matter. And we've just said matter can't be created or destroyed. Therefore, if something must be eternal, it must not be an imaginary God up there. It's the universe itself that's eternal. The universe itself has always existed. 
probably heard Einstein's famous equation. Energy equals um, mass times the speed of light in a vacuum squared. Did you know that's what that meant? E equals mc squared. And I'm, I'm not a physicist. I'm not going to act like I know what all of that means. But I do know that bound up in that equation is the idea that energy can convert to mass or matter and vice versa. And so when you ask most scientists, how did the world begin? How did the universe come into existence? They will often take you back to what's called a Big Bang. Now you've heard of that, right? A Big Bang, a, a huge explosion of energy from which all matter came. But that doesn't solve the problem, does it? Because then you have to ask, where did the energy come from? And it seems to be, though it's not often stated out loud, it seems to be the underlying assumption of secular science that the energy that makes up the universe is eternal, that it has always existed. But that's not the truth. There are a lot of problems with this naturalistic worldview that is pervasive both in our land and particularly in Europe and beyond. Besides the fact that Genesis 1 flatly denies it, right? <laughs> right? In the beginning, there was just God. There was not God and. There was just God. The problem is explaining how energy and matter, if energy really is eternal, and energy has been burst by the Big Bang into all of these different forms, how did it come to take the form it has now? Does it really make sense to say that without any God or any intelligent designer, is the phrase that's used today, that if there is no intelligent designer behind all things, did it just happen by chance that energy became matter, energy and matter together took on the form that we know in this world? There's a story, I don't know if it's true, but I've heard it several times before, that the 17th century mathematician and philosopher Sir Isaac Newton owned a mechanical replica of our solar system, made in miniature. At the center of this little mechanical solar system was a large golden ball representing the sun. And revolving around it were smaller spheres attached at the ends of rods of varying lengths. And these smaller spheres surrounding the sun represented the the planets, right? So we have a mechanical version of the solar system. And these were all geared together by cogs and belts so that they would move around the sun in perfect harmony. And one day, as Newton was looking at the model, playing with the model, an unbelieving friend stopped in for a visit. And marveling at this device and watching the scientists make the different planets move around the sun in their orbits, the man exclaimed, My, Newton! What an exquisite thing! Who made it for you? And without looking up, Sir Isaac Newton replied, Nobody. Nobody, his friend asked. That's right, I said nobody, said Newton. All of these cogs and belts and gears, they just happened to come together. And wonder of wonders, by chance, they began revolving in their set orbits with perfect timing. Newton's friend got the point. It is ridiculous to think that a model of the solar system could somehow form by itself. And if it's ridiculous to think that, how much more ridiculous is it to think that energy and matter, with no sovereign hand behind it, would somehow form the world as we have it today, with all its complexity? But we can go further. Because if we say that matter and energy and sheer randomness 
brought the universe into its present form, then this also implies that matter and energy somehow organized itself in such a way as to create life and personhood. Right? Remember what we said this morning? According to the, the pervasive worldview today, life just came from non-life. That the right things happened, the right conditions were met, that by chance, life began. Well, it seems to me that's a much more difficult leap of faith to take than to say that there's an almighty God who created these things. One may seem more scientific, but I do think the Christian faith is much more rational, to be honest, much more logical. We should also point out that if the naturalist is right, and all that we think and feel and experience is just the reorganizing of energy and atoms around us, then there is no meaning in life. No meaning at all. There, those who argue that the universe is eternal must, and that all of these things just form together by chance, they must affirm that chance then rules the day and our lives have no lasting significance or purpose. The results of this kind of thinking lead either to despair or more often to outright apathy. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. When we embrace a naturalistic worldview that says that all happened by chance and therefore there is no meaning in life, then what is there to live for but just the pleasure you can have before your body returns to the dust? And so that's what we see much more in our world. We have become a hedonistic, live-for-today culture, haven't we? Let's make the most out of our life because once it's gone, it's gone and there's no lasting meaning to it. That's the results of a naturalistic worldview. Moreover, morality no longer has any absolute relevance if we believe in naturalism. Because we can no longer say, if we're just the products of matter and energy having by chance formed into the world as we know it, if there is no God overseeing all things, then who are you to tell me what's right or wrong for me? And what is, who am I to tell you what's right or wrong for you? When we lose God out of the picture, we lose morality. And moreover, when we say that there is no God for whom we must stand before in the end, there's no limit to what people will do, to what kind of sins they will do. When there's no longer a God to stand before at the end of time, you find somebody who's not afraid of death, and they'll do all kinds of wickedness. Right? When we lose God, we lose morality. In a, naturalist, in a naturalist world, if a person doesn't fear death, there is no limit to the kind of destruction and hurt and havoc a person may choose to cause because there will be no God to answer to in the end. Naturalism is false. Genesis 1 is clear. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Real quickly, fourthly, uh, dualism is also false. And in particular, what I have in mind here is the kind of dualism which says that spiritual things are good but physical things are evil. Remember in our study on Wednesday night, uh, some time back we talked about Gnosticism and these folks in the early church who were constantly being brought away by this false teaching of Gnosticism. That included this dualistic idea that physical things are bad, but spiritual things are good. Yet that is clearly um, disproven in our text, isn't it? Because God is good. And what God creates is evil... No. Good. God is good. He's all good. He's nothing but good. And therefore, anything that comes from God must also be good. And the remainder of Genesis 1 affirms that, doesn't it? 
right? God created light. He sees the light. And what does he call it? Good. And you get all the way down to the end of the chapter and God looks at his creation, physical creation, and he says it is very good. Now, we might be tempted to say that at least some parts of God's creation are not good. Mosquitoes, right? If you had the option of creating the world, you might have said, I don't want to create mosquitoes. Those are not a part of the good plan, right? Mosquitoes, bacteria, Brussels sprouts, that's something I would have not included in the creation of the world. And certainly these things might have been affected by the fall. Maybe that's what happened. Maybe Brussels sprouts used to taste like chocolate ice cream, but now because of the fall, I I don't know. There's got to be a reason why healthy food doesn't taste as good as unhealthy food, though, right? There's got to be some explanation behind that. But anyway, regardless of that, uh, the Bible teaches that God's creation is good. In fact, 1 Timothy 4, 4 through 5 says this, Everything created by God is good. That's pretty clear, isn't it? And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, one implication of this is that if God's creation is good, then we would do well to delight in it. This morning, I began my sermon by asking you, when was the last time you went outside on a clear night and just marveled at the stars? I think it's a tragic thing that with the urbanization of our society and so many more people growing up in these big sprawling cities that many children now can grow up to adulthood having never tromped through a field or camped in a forest or fished in a lake. And yet as Christians we are taught that God's creation is good and we ought to delight in God's creation. In fact, if we look to the Psalms, the psalmist again and again celebrates the glory of God by marveling at God's world. The sun, the moon, the stars, the skies, the oceans and the rivers, the mountains and the valleys, the pastures and the forests, deer and lions, sheep and cattle, mighty sea creatures and birds, all of these are sung about in the Psalms. And similarly, while we should never love the gift more than the giver, we should never love creation more than the Creator, we should seek to honor and worship and love our God by delighting with thankfulness in His creation. One of the things that I would pray for us is that we would learn from Genesis 1 to see God everywhere. To see God in the sunrise and in the sunset, to see God in the trees, in the change of seasons, in the rain and the snow and the, the seeds that fall to the ground, the life that comes up from them. All of these things exist to declare something about God. Do you see God around you? Pray that God would open our eyes to see Him in His creation. Well, another ism that Genesis 1, 1 and 2 declares to be false is polytheism. Polytheism is the belief that there is more than one God. And this belief was pretty much accepted by every other culture except the Hebrews in the ancient world. And even the Hebrews, God's people, were again and again falling into idolatry, weren't they? Even with God's warnings, they were again and again falling into polytheism. The book of Genesis was given first to God's people during the Exodus on their trek to the promised land out of Egypt. 
And when God came to his people in Egypt, they not only needed to be set free from their slavery to the Egyptians, they also needed to be set free from the false religion of the Egyptians, which included this whole pantheon of false gods. And so God graciously revealed this account to his people Israel so that they would understand what no other nation seemed to understand at the time, which is that the earth is not ruled by a pantheon of unpredictable, fickle gods that constantly need to be appeased, but rather that the world is ruled over by one sovereign God, one God who created everything, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God who reveals his name as Yahweh, I am who I am. He is the God of all things. He's not just the God of the sun. He's not just the God of the sea. He's not just the God of the harvest or the God of the Nile. Joshua told God's people, once they came into the promised land and took up residence there, Joshua 24, 14, here's what he said to Israel. He says, now therefore fear Yahweh, the Lord, and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. This is the underlying message of the entire chapter of Genesis 1. God and God alone created the world. Now that may not seem revolutionary to us, but it was revolutionary to God's people when it was first revealed to them. Genesis 1 is radically different from the creation stories of the other ancient peoples of the world. We'll talk more about that next week. This is the reason why God can say, Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Because there is only one God, not many. Well, we talked about some of the isms that verses 1 and 2 deny. Let's also look at a second implication. The opening verses of Genesis imply the unique nature of God. We learn several things. I'm going to mention four, several things about God in just these opening two verses. The first thing we see is that God is eternal. He's eternal. This is clearly implied by the opening four words. In the beginning, God. Meaning, if you go somehow in your time machine back to the beginning of time, guess who's already there? God. He has always existed. There has never been a time when God was not. He is eternal. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 90, verse 2. God is eternal. Second thing clearly taught here about our God is that He is self-existent. We have no record here of our God being created by someone else or something else. He is eternal and therefore He is self-existence. He does not exist because of something or someone else. He is because He is. He is self-sustaining. He is dependent on nothing or no one. Without God, we would not exist. Without us, God exists just fine. Doesn't He? God does not need us, but we are forever dependent upon Him. 
Acts 17, 24-25 says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, He does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Point of that passage, when you serve God, you're not adding anything to God. You're not filling some need that God has. Rather, God in His grace chooses to meet our needs. Even our service to God is ultimately His service to you for your joy and your good. Another thing that these verses imply about our God is that He is wise. Is that He is wise. It only takes a momentary look at creation to realize that our God is not in the business of sloppy work, is He? The earth has been placed in just the right orbit at just the right axis for life to exist on our planet. Your own human body is fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in your mother's womb, and it is a testimony to God's skill. God does nothing haphazardly. He does all things well. The water cycle, the food chain, photosynthesis, the chemical reactions around us each and every day, these reveal God's wisdom because He skillfully designed all of them. The more science explores the big things of the universe, like black holes and supernovas and uh, dark matter, and as science explores the little things of the universe, like the world of microbiology, whether it's big things or small things, we're only discovering more of the wisdom of God. We will never come close to fully recognizing and understanding all the ways that God's wisdom is displayed in creation. God says in Isaiah 55, 9, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Another thing we see here about our God, and this is the most obvious, is that our God is very powerful. That is quite a power to create everything out of nothing, isn't it? It is no small thing to do. And it shows to us the immense force of the will of God. This is one of the chief attributes of God on the lips of the 24 elders surrounding His throne in Revelation 4. What are the elders in heaven uh, around the throne of God? What are they singing about? Revelation 4:11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Creation is a testament to the power of the will of God. It is irresistible. Whatever God purposes to accomplish will be accomplished. This is true regarding creation. It is true regarding His purposes in history. It's true regarding the salvation of His people. The same power that created life out of nothing creates life in dead hearts of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, accomplishing God's plan to redeem for Himself a kingdom of worshipers who will rejoice in Him. God exercises His sovereign power around us every day. And hurricanes and earthquakes 
in gentle breezes and sunshine, God is at work. God's love is a mighty love, and those who belong to Him will experience the fullness of God's power lavished upon them in heaven as God throws His love on us each and every day in a powerful way. But similarly, God's wrath against wickedness is a powerful wrath. And those who continue to rebel against Him will experience the fullness of it in hell. If there are any in here who are not trusting in the person and the work of Christ, I would pray that you would do so today. Because you will one day know the power of God. You will either know it as you experience the power of His love in heaven or as you experience the power of His wrath in hell. Both are good attributes for Him to express. Which one will be expressed towards you? I pray it will, you will experience His love in heaven. God loves you even now. And that's why He has held back the judgment of your sins in order to give you time to repent and to turn to Him. And I pray that you would do so before His patience must step aside to allow His justice to come in. Well, the nature of God that I've been describing, a God who is eternal, who is all-powerful, who is wise, this God is God as He really is. Sometimes we hear people say, well, I like to think of God this way. I feel that God is like this. And yet what we think or feel about God is irrelevant and has no bearing on who He really is. He is who He is. Isn't that what, what he told Moses, right? Moses said, God, when I go to the Israelites, they're going to want to know your name. What do I tell them, God? God said, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Who would God be if you did not exist? If your thoughts about God did not exist, if your opinions about God did not exist, if your feelings about God did not exist, who would God be? He would be who He is. He is God, the God revealed in the Bible. The God revealed in Genesis 1 is God as He is, and it is incumbent upon us to deal with the God that actually exists rather than worshiping a God of our own imagination or feelings. I fear that there are many people today who call themselves Christians who are worshiping a God of their own making and their own minds. You may have heard this story before. James Boyce, the late pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, told the story of a man who was walking on a mountain and he stumbled and he fell over a cliff. And the man was saved from plummeting to his death by a branch that as he was falling, he was able to grasp onto the branch. He looked around, holding on, and he realized there was no way for him to get up or down. He is stuck holding on to the branch. There was a deep ravine below him and he had never been a very religious man, but at this moment he felt his only hope was to cry out to God for help. And so the man, grasping onto the branch, he cried out, Hello, is there anybody up there? If there is, I could really use some help. And suddenly the booming voice of God called out, I can help you, but you're going to have to let go of the branch. The man thought for a moment. And then at the top of his lungs, he yelled out, Is there anybody else up there? <laughs> okay, it's pretty bad when I have to get you to laugh. The truth of that story is that there is only one God with whom we must deal. 
we don't get to play around with who God is. We don't get to decide who the God is that we're going to stand before on the day of judgment. The God of Genesis 1 is our creator. He is our sustainer. He is our king, and ultimately, he is our judge. He is there to help us. And he has provided a way for us to be at peace with him and to enjoy blessings from him beyond our wildest dreams. The gods that we form out of our own feelings, imagination, opinions, they will never be able to help us. But if we deal honestly with the one true God of the Bible, we will find that he is worthy of our trust worthy of our obedience, and worthy of our love. Amen? Amen. All right, we've looked at two verses this morning and this evening in Genesis 1. Um, do y'all have any questions about those verses or anything that was, that was said this morning or this evening? I don't have no question, but I'm going to ask you one thing. I'm going to tell you one thing. Sure. <laughs> that's right that's right we can be presumptuous can't we about God we can we can try and contort him to what we want him to be that's, that's exactly right Mr. Dixie exactly right any other questions or comments All right. Next Sunday morning and evening, we'll be looking at the six days of creation, verses 3 through 25, and, and the way in which God took that watery wasteland and formed it into the perfect creation that he has at the end of Genesis chapter 1. So uh, we'll be talking about that next week. Let me pray for us.